Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. March Madness tips off on Thursday, and to get your brackets set, make sure you listen and subscribe to our college basketball experts on One Shining Podcast with Mark Titus and Tate Frazier. Also on Monday, be sure to watch the guys on their live selection show, recapping the seedings from Selection Sunday and previewing the top matchups to look forward to. You can check out the show on YouTube and listen to One Shining Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Recapables Billions Edition, your one and only source into the scandalous lives of Manhattan's elite. Just kidding, that's Gossip Girl, but what is Billions if not Gossip Girl about middle-aged men? Uh, this is a podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. This is a discussion of a show that is near and dear to the hearts of, I think, pretty much every single Ringer staffer, but especially my co-host. I am on the line with Miles Surrey, a staff writer for TheRinger.com, a wonderful website. Miles, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm excited to talk about Billions with you again. I'm sure we'll be in sync like incestuous ice dancers. Miles, you're stealing one of my favorite quotes already. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, this is a, a ringer favorite show. It is ridiculous. It is larded with inaccessible and elaborate references. It is fun and the scenery is flying. Um, before we dive into the main discussion, we should probably just run through a brief plot recap. Keep in mind that this is a notoriously plot-dense show. <laughs> I was, like, shocked that the premiere came in under 58 minutes. I was very uh, thankful to Brian Koppelman and David Levine for respecting our hard-pressed TV critic schedules. <laughs> but I'm just going to run through, like, a paragraph worth of plot description, and then we'll actually get started on breaking down the episode, which is the fourth season premiere titled One Second. I did not Chucky actually... Chucky Rhodes' Greatest Game. Thank you it. so <laughs> much, Miles. You're already doing better at this than I am. <laughs> but before I throw to you once more, so the plot of the episode, in short, mm-hmm. Axe, Bobby Axe Axelrod, played by Damian Lewis, continues to wage his somewhat one-sided war against Taylor Mason and their new firm, while both of them are courting the shake of a fictional Middle Eastern nation. Unfortunately, Taylor's extremely scary and extremely Russian backer, Grigor Andalov, who bears a suspicious resemblance to John Malkovich, doesn't really approve of Axe gunning after his money, and to prove his point, he kidnaps Wags, which is, you know, how you make your typical business transactions in the Billions universe. Meanwhile, Chuck, Charles Rhodes, Jr. adjusts to his post-U.S. attorney life as a quote-unquote power broker, which in this case is basically a glorified errand runner tasked with getting paranoid rich guys concealed carry permits in New York City, which is borderline impossible. But with the help of his wife, Wendy, and surprisingly Axe, he does ultimately get it done and cements an alliance with the New York police commissioner by helping him keep his Star Little League pitcher. And naturally, all of this happens in the spot where John Gotti put out a hit on Paul Castellano in 1985, Spark Steakhouse. So a lot happened. That's just kind of the what. Miles, what is your tweet-length review of this episode? Sure. So my tweet-length review is, can I interest anyone in a park anywhere permit from the mayor's office? (laughs) Oh, that was so tough. Chuck is really not in a great place. This was really like a scene setting episode. Like um, it's the fourth season premiere. 
Mm-hmm. We're finding out where everyone is. How would you describe Chuck's position relative to where we saw him last? You know, like you mentioned, Billions is so plot heavy. There's all these little things going on all the time that I rewatched the season three finale to just sort of get myself reacquainted with where everyone's at. And Chuck, I mean, you know, he he's out of a job. He's basically trying to start from scratch and get his mojo back. And the the fact that a, like, even though getting a gun permit in New York's hard for someone of Chuck's stature, it should be relatively straightforward. He's got to, yeah, like you said, be an errand boy. He's trying to leverage a park anywhere permit uh, to anyone that wants it as as a way to to curry favor with people. And, uh, you know, it's it's not exact like people people have their park anywhere permits when when they're already rich and powerful. The look Wendy gives him. When he's like, you should take my park anywhere permit and use it to flatter this hedge fund guy who definitely doesn't really (laughs) need to park anywhere because I'm sure he has like a private garage in his insane, you know, New York City Hudson Yards apartment building or whatever is just so sad. Like we left Chuck in a very bad place, uh, having been fired by Jock Jeffcoat and replaced by his Mm -hmm. one time protege, Brian Connerty. And we don't really find him in a much better place this episode. And I think that the line that you singled out is definitely the best encapsulation. Like, he's just trying to work his mojo, and the mojo isn't quite there. But I'm sure as the season progresses, he'll he'll find more to do with himself. Um, my tweet-length review is that the students have become the masters, and that's not necessarily a good thing. I think the parallels between Taylor and Connerty were already, like, very evident before— even we saw what they did with their respective coups. And I think this Mm -hmm. episode really sets them up as both of them kind of position themselves as I'm going to do it in a better, more ethical way than my mentor did. Like Taylor Mason Capital is not going to do the things that Axe Capital did, including like squeezing a small upstate New York City dry of like every penny possible. Um, Connerty once he's been sworn in as a U.S. attorney for the Southern District, is like, oh, I can't wait to get started on, you know, these things I've been thinking about that I want to do. And then immediately Jock walks up and is like, yeah, you're going to do this politically motivated witch hunt and just discredit Chuck because that's what I'm interested in. And I think both of them, like, want to do better, but they used some sort of suspicious backers that I think make that very difficult. Like, uh, in the previously on Billions clip, I think very portentously, they show a bit of Taylor saying, you know, you shouldn't really go to Grigor Andalov for money. That's not a good idea. And then mm-hmm. Grigor Andalov is now their principal backer in their new firm. And like, I don't know how much better you can do than what Axe Cap does if you're leaning on this Russian oligarch. And the same goes for Connerty with this like... I guess we could call him Jeff Tillerson or like Rex Sessions, <laughs> this sort of unholy hybrid of Trumpian archetypes who's now mm-hmm. like dictating his every move. But yeah, like obviously Axe and Chuck are always going to be like the center of the show. But this episode made me think a lot about their kind of challengers and how difficult it is to really like have a blank slate. Our next category is something called Explain Why the Show is a Thing. So yep. uh, I'm pretty sure, you know, if you're tuning into this podcast recap of the fourth season premiere of a Showtime <laughs> drama, you probably are like into and understand why Billions is a thing. But maybe this could just be like a, a good time to throw the spotlight on a particular moment from the episode that just made you crack a smile. And uh, I believe the first moment of the episode might be that for you, but I'll let you I'll let you supply the rest. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I think the fact that, yeah, the new season opens with, first of all, Wags and Farhan, the emissary for the Sheik of, uh, what was the name of the the fictional nation? Kadir? Yes, it's Kadir, which I believe, it's like the, they're joining the like West Wing universe (laughs) of shows that come up with like a fictional but somehow very important Middle Eastern country to just be a yep. pivotal player in the action. But yes, continue. Uh, yeah, so so that scene, first of all, the fact that they're at the club and it's like a club mix of uh, short dick man, small dick man, <laughs> short dick man. It's like a little on the nose in terms yeah, a little, of... It's very on the nose, but uh, it feels very appropriate to just get you reacquainted with billions after a year. And yeah, Wags gets drugged with something, tossed into basically almost like a storage closet in the Katir embassy. And then we, you know, get that 27 hours earlier flash to just sort of set up why Wags is getting Classic billion structure, by the way. Like, I don't know what the numbers are on this, but I feel like there are at least two episodes a season that start with some, like, really flashy cold open and are, like, 48 hours earlier. (laughs) Yep, yeah. It was the ice juice one, I think, was probably the, the pinnacle of those, just showing all that going down. Yes, but they've definitely continued with that. But yeah, like the yep. the sight of Wags, like there is no more billions way to start a billion season than the sight of Wags just like doing a bump of Coke sandwiched between two girls in a club. And there's, you know, there were lots of other moments of people being like generally derisive towards women or hedonistic in the episode. But like it truly starts big. I, I will say the other scene that was Important in a more serious way was, um, I think, when Taylor was uh, speaking with Farhan, uh, the fact that they, quote, suited up for the meeting, which meant putting on a dress and a wig and uh, essentially, again, like sort of foregoing some of those moral principles uh, to get the money and, and get Taylor Mason cap, you know, off the ground running. Yeah, that was fascinating. I did think it was sort of noteworthy that the actor who plays them, Asia Kate Dillon, did not modify their voice at all when they were going, like, falconing mm-hmm. on the roof, I guess. Um, which As I, one does. <laughs> yeah, which I thought was, like, a, an interesting, like, line in the sand in terms of, like, how much they were willing to modify their self-presentation. But I thought it was interesting that, like— I'm not sure—like, Axe describes it as them bending their principles— I thought I took it as them just being very pragmatic. It's not as much of an ethical line cross as like getting in bed with the Russian dude who looks like John Malkovich, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, so I would say like my key scene is probably just like the final scene where uh, Chuck and the New York City police commissioner are at Spark Steakhouse. They have just brokered a compromise. And the final line of the episode is Chuck saying, that's New York for you. Boss one moment, gutter the next. Best you can hope for is one last look at the stars before you go. Which I just think is like a very um, accurate summation of where Chuck is at the moment and probably like an interesting bottom point from which he will ascend. Because I think Axe has obviously like a lot farther to go if he before he ever has a come to Jesus moment. But I think Chuck is really like... You know, he's got it. He's in a corner. He's got to fight his way out. I think this is Wendy literally tells him at one point in the episode, if you can't do this, you're just over. You might as well join Oliver Dake and go fucking Oliver Dake, as she puts it, (laughs) and go teach law. So I thought that was an interesting like scene setting for the season Uh, related. Who is your MVP of the episode, Miles? Um, I 
I think I'm going to give it to Taylor just because seeing what uh, they were willing to do working with uh, some sovereign wealth, uh, working with a Russian oligarch who happens to look just like John Malkovich. I think it proves that, you know, obviously acts as a lot of uh, power. The fact that they basically paid off their headhunter so that uh, they wouldn't get like good applicants to to join the company. I think that, you know, the, the premiere, even though it's a lot of table setting, it proved that they aren't going to be so easily squashed. Honestly, the MVP pick was like really difficult for me. I don't think we see really anyone at their best. Like we've already talked about the situation that Chuck is in, but even Axe, like he admits they're in his head and they don't have to be like, it would be very easy for him to just walk away and just keep making billions of dollars. But that's not really how you get to be the kind of person who makes billions of dollars. But like, you know, when, when a very frightening person who is prop, who is willing to like drug your closest friend and most trusted deputy tells you like, hey, this was just like a friendly fire situation or a friendly warning. Like, you should back off. Just forget about this. Like, don't, you know, just walk away. Yeah, don't do it. <laughs> and uh, with Wag's encouragement, like, Axe's response is to just be like, okay, I'll just do this in a different way, which I'm not sure that will end particularly well and is also very much, I think, an unforced error. So I had, yeah. like, a pretty tough time figuring out, like, you know, Taylor and Connerty are starting with a handicap. Axe and Chuck are both not really in a great place. So my pick for MVP was actually a new character. Um, one of, I'm going to assume, a few this season because that's like what a show starts doing in its fourth season. It adds characters. But I was really intrigued by the character of Taylor's new COO. Her name is Sarah. We know that she came from Silicon Valley. We know that she went to Annapolis, so she's ex-military. We don't learn a lot about her, but we do learn that she's very principled. She's very committed because she's doing, like, I don't even know, like, 4 or 5 a.m. Skype calls with Taylor and was like, what else was I doing? Um, But she sort of seems to be Taylor hired her to remind them to keep their principles intact, which I thought was interesting because Sarah's also who encourages Taylor that, like, suiting up and, you know, putting on high femme drag is, like, what it takes to succeed. But she was sort of the first person where I was like, oh, who's that? Because so much of Billions is like, oh, I love hanging out with my new friends. But Taylor, at one point, was also a new face. So that was kind of mm-hmm. who I kept my eye on. I would also like to add that I, uh, out of force of habit, came up with an LVP. Which oh, should... same here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Who's yours? <laughs> uh, it's Rudy. Is is he yours, uh, too? No, but please explain. I mean, Rudy is a very yeah. good candidate for this. <laughs> so poor Rudy. He didn't have a good time last season. Tried to steal dollar bills, lucky dollar bill. Got caught with a fleshlight at work, which... Uh, don't look. do that, everyone. Yeah, tough look. <laughs> Even in um, a hedge fund, just don't do <laughs> yeah, that. Just, just don't. And then um, he, first of all, he went to basically a Taylor Mason Capital barbecue, took a selfie with Mafi, whose that, Instagram handle I believe is just <laughs> at Mafi. Which I guess perfect. shout out to him. I don't know how much competition there was for that, but <laughs> yeah, it's a unique name, but. You know, like, you know your boss. He's a bit of a sociopath. He clearly resents Taylor and anyone involved with her. Don't fraternize with the enemy. And even worse, he, I think it's like he already signed his non-compete. He's fired. He, uh, you know, we might not see uh, Rudy in his flashlight for quite some time. 
I know, it's really tragic. My LVP was less to do with just, like, their relative position of power within the episode because I actually think they did pretty well. But we didn't really get a lot of Wendy as, like, a protagonist or center of a conflict, which is totally fair. There's only so much that you can do in such a compressed amount of time. But Wendy's function this episode is mostly to, like, help her husband and be Axe's, like, enforcer slash trusted deputy. And we don't really get a lot of her as, like, the third pole of the show. So I'm just very curious about how that's going to develop over the course of the season. And I think she also highlights what the show is like now that Chuck and Axe are, like, quote-unquote, on the same side. Like, how did that strike you, the fact that they're technically allies now? It it was really weird, especially because it's addressed in, like, a 45-second phone call, and that's that, Um, which is, you know, when... Chuck's running around asking for favors. Axe is on the seat of uh, a school that's going to be built. If, a if charter I'm not school in Tribeca, yeah. which is like <laughs> yep. the most New York City five finance thing I've ever heard of. But yes. Uh, yeah. And yeah. And then in, in the middle of the conversation, he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll move the building a couple blocks to help you out because, you know. We're pals now, and it'll take that, money, just, but who cares? Yeah, is, but who cares? The quote. How long do you think this alliance lasts? Because I, I feel like it could at least be a season-long thing, but I, I just feel like the show will eventually be tempted to sort of go back to axe and chuck at each other's throats eventually. I think so, but what really struck me about it was honestly that the show is just not that different, which is really a testament to the show because it started out as this whole Clash of the Titans thing, but as they've built up their benches on both sides of that divide and it's become more about Axe's conflict with Taylor and Chuck's conflict with Connerty and his dad and everyone else in New York, it's become a lot more than that and so it doesn't really need that conflict to sustain it. And also, like, the fact that they already lead such relatively separate existences, except for, obviously, like, Wendy is the link between them. So I thought it was interesting that, like, I didn't even really feel it. And then you see, you know, Axe be a stop on Chuck's, like, favor bank rotation. And you're like, oh, right. Like, that that's technically a relationship that is supposedly, like, the most important one on the show. But, like, is mm-hmm. it really? But yeah, I thought it was interesting. If I had to guess, it would be like a season and a half or like maybe even just when the show's going into its final season, it'll reorient around that. But uh, whenever that is, it's showtime. So it'll probably be yeah. like season nine. Hopefully. <laughs> True. We want the it to last route. that long. <laughs> um, our next more lighthearted category is just best meme yet. So that's probably, you know, it obviously hasn't aired yet. We don't know what's really going to become a meme. I think this might be like a good hybrid with most scarring moment. It certainly could be for my selection. Uh, what is yours? Uh, so mine was just generally the the sad state of uh, <laughs> Chuck feeling fine and and, and <laughs> it, insisting that he's doing okay and dancing. And so are you familiar with Drill on Twitter? Am I familiar with Drill? Of so course. It, yeah, I was going to say, it, that whole scene where he's dancing he's like I'm doing great you know like I'm back it just reminded me of I'm not owned I'm not owned I yes. continue to insist that Chuck is like a corn, cob. a corn cob he yep. is a corn cob in human form I also thought of like sad fleck but without any of the movie star charisma Aww. no yeah. offense to Paul Giamatti who is plenty charismatic but Chuck is you know really taking L after L in this episode my pick was also Chuck dancing to the Reverend Al Green which uh <laughs> the episode clearly knows is very uncomfortable and embarrassing because the camera just like locks on him for like 
30 uninterrupted seconds and I could just like feel myself like sweating and the secondhand embarrassment was like really too much. It was very scarring, but it was also a very effective way, I thought, to reintroduce Chuck Rhodes into our lives. And I I loved all the cuts of that guy in the room just wanting to get his gun permit, just sort of being subjected to all that. He, He was as uncomfortable as we were. Yeah, you know, I'm not that sympathetic to a guy who's seeking a concealed carry gun permit in New York City who's already, you know, presumably rich enough to afford protection. But, you know, I did sympathize with him in that moment. So our next category is picking nits. I feel like we need to set up the caveat that, like, all of Billions takes place in an absurd alternate universe where, like, a U.S. attorney can prosecute his own wife's employer and, like, not really fully recuse himself. So, you know, we're already starting with like a giant asterisk hanging over this entire podcast. But if you had any nits to pick with this episode of Billions, did you have any? See, that's the thing. Not only that, but the fact that I just don't know a lot about the finance world. So I'm just like, are, are, is this actually over the top or is yes. it like disturbingly accurate? Like, Billions is absurd, but as far as I'm concerned, it is also a documentary. <laughs> I guess, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that, like, a CFO would be drugged and taken hostage in an in an embassy. I'll say that that might be a bit of a stretch, even if uh, a Russian oligarch who looks like John Malkovich is involved. Yeah, that was definitely, like, a, a lot to process. But also, if it would happen to anyone, it would obviously happen to WAGs. So. Absolutely. As you mentioned, neither of us are experts in the world of high finance. However... I am Jewish. My entire extended family is from New York. I would like to think I am something of an expert on New York deli culture. <laughs> I think the restaurant choices per usual for Billions in this episode were, like, really amazing. There's the remodeled uh, restaurant of the Four Seasons, which is where Chuck and Wendy have dinner. There's EAT mm-hmm. on the Upper East Side, which is like a sort of spinoff of Zabar's. I believe it's his son. There's Michael's, lots of power places. But we are asked to believe in this episode that the commissioner of the NYPD— who is this, like, old-school Italian dude, every morning goes to breakfast at Barney Greengrass on the Upper West Side, which is very, very far from the NYPD's downtown headquarters, and also, like, not really the ancestral food associated with Italian-Americans in New York City. So, you know, that was, like, a slight suspension of disbelief. I definitely believe it would be, like, a stop on Chuck's rotation, obviously. But Mm -hmm. that was, like, my one, like, huh, what what an Italian cop really... Go get locks and bagels or sable as uh, Chuck name name drops on his way out. So that was, you know, all due respect to Billions and its extremely effective New York City world building via restaurant selection. But that was my only one. Uh, Yeah, I feel like also Sparks Steakhouse might have been a little too on the nose given everything. It was on the nose. Honestly, I was more surprised that like Connery and Sacker would just be like getting a drink there. It doesn't really seem like they're seen. Yeah, because they usually uh, get get like beers at, I don't remember the name of that other bar they're always at. That's a lot more low key. I guess now that they yeah. made it, they're just sort of moving up in, in the bar ranks. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he's a power player. He got a, he's got to sip his whiskey at a full steakhouse instead of just like a normal bar. So now we're going to venture a little bit outside of the Billions universe, as rich as it is. And we have a category called If You Like This, also check out, which we use to recommend like other shows you might be interested in. If you like this, other things that you should be reading. Uh, Miles, you have a very relevant plug here. Would you like to explain what you did before the season premiered? Sure thing. Yeah. Um, At the beginning of this month, I hung out with David Costabile, a.k.a. Wags. Um... Nobody sushi was involved. We didn't go to a Turkish bathhouse. He is not Wags. He's a very cool dude. We 
just got a cup of coffee, talked about his career, um, mostly on Prestige TV, which includes, you know, stints on The Wire, uh, Breaking Bad, Damages, Suits, Fly the Concords. He's sort of been like a kind of an interesting through line with, with all these, you know, great shows for like this era of, you know, this, this, I guess, second golden age of TV. And yeah, he's he's a really interesting guy. He um he actually knew uh Brian Koppelman, the uh co-creator and co-showrunner of Billions from Tufts University. They were there at the same time. Uh Brian talks about how they took an acting class together. Um and, and like they shared a scene once and you know, he talked about how he knew from that moment that he felt like this guy was really going to make it and become an actor. So, if that sounds interesting to you, yeah, it's on the ringer.com. A so wonderful website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the supplemental reading that I'm going to recommend is actually not on the ringer.com, but it is a very good article. The New York Times did a really interesting piece before you sort of in anticipation of the season called Billions, Succession, and the Making of Wealth Porn. It's written by Alexis Solosky. And it's about just how the people who are in charge of kind of the nitty-gritty craft details of these shows, like location managers and wardrobe designers, go about building a world populated by billionaires when, you know, they do not actually have a billion-plus dollars at their disposal to buy a insane penthouse as Axe inhabits. So I thought it was really interesting the way they talked about the differences between Billions and Succession. Billions is obviously very ostentatious. It's very goofy. It's very fun. And Succession is like— both a little more somber and a little sharper. And I also think, like, succession makes wealth look miserable and not particularly, like, desirable. Whereas, you know, as we were discussing off mic, I think both of us would sacrifice, like, several vital organs for the chance to live in Chuck and Wendy's townhouse. So (laughs) if you want to hear more about just, like, how these shows are made and how they depict extreme wealth and, you know, all the millions of tiny little choices that go into making a TV show, I highly recommend that. You can obviously find that at the New York Times. Uh, Our final category is host category of our choosing— we decided to do a little more of a throwback, and at the on the previous Billions Recapables format, we had a whole section specifically dedicated to quotes. You can't really talk about Billions without talking about the many, 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 many pop culture references and one-liners that Koppelman and Levine and their writers just stuff the scripts with. So we each picked three independently of each other, but also several backups because there's probably going to be some overlap. You already did the in-sync, like, incestuous ice dancers. Uh, Why don't you get things started? What's your first quote that really stood out to you this episode? So, yeah, there were a few quotes. I'm just going to start with the the quote that I found most scarring. I I feel like that that would be appropriate. Yeah, just fusing categories. Absolutely. So it was, I think, the only line that Spiros had the entire episode, public execution, power move, whose bits aren't hard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which I just don't even want to. Oh God! Uh, yeah, bits. And Ben Kim then said, echoing all of us, "Gross." Thank you, Ben Kim. Yeah, truly, thank you, Ben Kim. Truly speaking up on behalf of us all. So we can't really do and sing like incestuous ice dancers, but there is a follow up to that remark from Bonnie. I believe, like the only visible, like non receptionist female employee of Axe Cap besides non-receptionists and not like Wendy, who is obviously like the number two or three in the company. But Bonnie responds, my thong's already writing up my crack. I don't need you up there to Axe, which, you know, she's obviously really adapted to the boys, uh, boys club culture of a high powered hedge fund. And I just wanted to say, lean in Bonnie. I appreciate you. Uh, Miles, what would, what's your second quote? It is, Chuck Sr. to Chuck, 
you know, trying to get his mojo back, he says, I would slap your face until you'd act like a man if I didn't think it'd turn you on. Um, that was <laughs> to, also to my which, second pick. Yeah. I also think, like, we need to really describe the enunciation going on there. It's a, obviously a reference to Chuck and Wendy's proclivity for bondage, which is a plot that the show has taken surprisingly seriously, uh, given that this whole show opened with a shot of Paul Giamatti getting peed on. Uh it's pronounced like if I didn't think it'd turn you on, which like yep. <laughs> somehow makes it even worse. I will follow. The, you are totally right. That is deeply, deeply scarring. Uh, yeah. Also, I feel <laughs> Chuck Chuck's response is like it wouldn't, Dad. Not from you. That's not how it works. Well, there's Good like this Lord. like half-hearted attempt to like explain bondage, yep. and then they cut to Ira, who was like awkwardly there to watch this fight between his best friend and his dad. I also like don't really understand why Ira was there, but um, so th- this is the thing. That- that, like, I, I wrote this out several times. Like, I think I just love the fact that Chuck Sr. and Ira just happen to hang out now for some reason. They're in a lot of scenes together at the end of the third season and now in the premiere. I guess, yeah, guess I guess they're, they're just they're, an item. They're just both like pro Chuck or something, but yeah, um, they're, they're team Chuck, basically. But yeah. Ira does serve a very important purpose, which is that we get to see his face while he's watching a father and son talk about the son's sexual proclivities. And like Ben Kim really echoes like all of our reactions. Um, I would just add that there's a moment like later in the episode where Chuck or later in that same conversation where Chuck tries to stand up for himself and Chuck Sr. shuts him down by saying, Oye, Oye, Sonny, which is like, I don't even know. It's like this weird if you're cranky grandpa or a Supreme Court justice. I don't understand what that was, but it was also amazing and hilarious. Um, Final quote, Miles. Farhan to Wags, just the delivery of it made it so funny. Are you comparing your free structure by way of several vulgarisms to our religion? Oh, yeah. In the same conversation where I believe uh, Wags describes the female anatomy as tatas and donut, Donut. which is the first time. (laughs) Maybe I'm just like not schooled enough in the ways of the world that I've never heard that particular euphemism for a woman's genitalia. So shout out to Wags for educating us all. Really amazing. Uh, We actually did not overlap in this final selection. Uh, Mine was, you know, despite the fact that Wendy does not get, like, a great deal of the spotlight in this episode, she does give one amazing line, which is um, she has recently or gotten the hedge fund manager played by Jerry O'Connell, Stephen Birch, to give Chuck season-long ski passes for, like, Aspen or something. I don't remember if it was specified. And Chuck is like, how did you do that? What did you trade him? And Wendy's like, I traded him a session. Chuck understandably follows up. Isn't that kind of like cheating on Axe, who just made everyone sign insane non-compete agreements because of the whole Taylor thing? And then she just responds, I won't give Birch the A stuff, which is like (laughs) definitely not uh, medically ethical, but I respect her uh, savvy and ability to navigate this world. Um, I believe that brings us to the end of our podcast. Any final words, Miles? Just that I honestly like cannot wait to dive into the rest of the season, but that probably won't come as a surprise to anyone at this company. <laughs> I mean, cosine, hard degree, et cetera. Uh, thank mm-hmm. you so much to those of you who listened. I can, again, cannot wait to keep breaking this down, hopefully with Miles, maybe with some other Ringer staffers. This has been a great conversation. Will hopefully be a great season of Billions. And yeah, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. 